Tēnā katoa katoa and hello everybody. Welcome to the Lento Intervention Podcast. My name is Ben Adelberg and I'm coming to you from Tamaki Makoto, Auckland. And g'day, I'm Emma Strutt and I'm currently coming to you from Yugambeh country in Queensland. And before we dive into our conversation today, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. The Lento Intervention is an Australasian educational and advocacy platform dedicated to raising awareness about the current climate and health crisis. And on this podcast, we invite guests to chat about topics that will inspire you to take action to improve your own health and the health of the planet. So please subscribe to and share this podcast and visit our website for the full show notes. And don't forget to buy us a coffee if you'd like to support our work. The term food system describes the interconnected systems and processes that influence nutrition, food, health, community development and agriculture. This is a concept that we need to better understand. Often we look at things in isolation and that is precisely why we struggle to solve problems. Our next guest is someone that is going to help us dig a little deeper with a specific look at what food sovereignty is all about. That's right. So today we're really excited to be sitting down for a chat with Summer Wright. Summer is a dietitian and PhD candidate at Massey University, where she's currently investigating the social and economic opportunities for Maori businesses in plant-based food. Summer also serves as co-convener of Ora Taiao, the New Zealand Climate and Health Council. So one very, very busy lady who's very passionate about food sovereignty and social justice issues. Summer, thank you so much for joining us today. Tēnā koroa, he uri a hau no Ngāti Maniapoto, ko Ōtorohanga me Waitakere a hau, e noho ana au ki Tamaki, ko Summer Rangimari e Wright Tōku Ingoa. So yeah, my name's Summer. Um, really nice to be here today, so thank you for inviting me. Uh, I'm a researcher, as you said, who has also trained as a dietitian and am currently one of the co-conveners of Ōtorohanga, the New Zealand Climate and Health Council. Um, me and a listener of our show so thank you been listening for about a year now um and yeah really good really good to be here so yeah now a lot you're involved in an incredible amount uh we do wonder how people like yourselves fit it all in but let's start off with a little bit about yourself your background tell us a little bit about who you are um and yeah, before we, we crack into the meaty stuff. Yeah, sure. Or the not meaty stuff, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> um, Excuse the pun. Yeah. It's hard to know where to start. Um, could take you 50 years back when I wasn't around, but no. Um, <laughs> I guess when I first became interested in food was probably right at the start of my university career when I came out of high school. Um, I was browsing YouTube late at night back when it was maybe less tightly um, regulated. I don't know how the algorithm worked back then, but I somehow came across some uh, footage of, you know, like industrial farms um, and how the animals get processed. That really upset me for quite a long time. And I wasn't sure where to take my studies. I was kind of just doing it because it just seemed like the best option out of high school. But then I saw possibly nutrition research as a pathway. Um, 
and I asked the university, I'm interested in nutrition. And so a dietitian naturally advocated for their profession and advised I study to become a dietitian. So I said, oh yeah, that sounds really good. Um, that could be a way for me to learn about food a bit more, but then also um, have some kind of tohu or like uh, accreditation that I could speak from. Um, and that's worked out obviously, because you're inviting me to talk here, partly from that background. Um, but at that same time, as I was kind of exploring nutrition through academia, I was also evolving my thoughts on the ethics and politics of food and was also learning about how food was interconnected with planetary health, but then also um, human health. And so I finished my dietetics training in 2020 um, and then I came across a PhD. And so that brings me to now. Um, so yeah, a bit of an overview of where I've come from. And Auckland based? Yep. Um, I grew up in West Auckland um, and currently based in Tamaki, out, out east, but spend a bit of time down in Manawatu for my PhD as well. And you've also got a bit of a background, um, I'm guessing before university as a like a disability and, and support worker. So obviously you've kind of been fighting for fair and being aware of many kind of the, the many aspects of health for a long time. So do you think this has kind of played into where you've gone with your PhD research? I think partly, yeah. So I, I came into youth work during uni where I was looking for some kind of employment that had some aspect of meaning to it, but also, you know, like I needed a job. <laughs> so I, re I really enjoyed that. And then I went from there into um, support work with adults with disabilities. And I guess, yeah, through doing that, you get more exposure to how people live their lives, um, barriers to being healthy. Um, and yeah, so it, I guess studying to be a dietitian, you've, I further elaborated on that, that like how people navigate their lives, how food impacts them on a day to day. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, bit a bit of social justice woven into that work, but it was also just quite fun and a really good way to um, get exposure to health work and working in communities. And it made me think being a dietitian would be really cool as well. So fast forward now to your PhD candidacy, something you've, you've just undertaken. Tell us about the topic that you've chosen and, and the, and the motivation behind it. Yeah, sure. Um, so I was finishing up dietetics and I was like, I am done with research. This is really hard. Um, but then <laughs> I saw an advertisement sent to me by a friend about this PhD that was prompting exploration into what the unique value of plant-based food made by Maori businesses was. And I was like, oh, that's mine. Like, I, I just know that if I um, really went for it, I would be able to do that um, and it would be really interesting. And so why I was so drawn to it, I think it united a few elements that I was already exploring and wanted to explore more, such as, you know, the the value of plant-based food for society, um, Māori health, and how 
um, the value that it could have for Māori as people. Um, and yeah, and, and so this research, it was already set out. So it's funded by the Ministry of Business and Innovation as part of their Future Foods Catalyst Fund. That's run through Massey University. The project's called Te Rangahotaha Whiako Mō Ngā Kai o A Pōpō. And I think it's it's funded from partly a recognition that, you know, there's these huge issues with um, population health and diets and also climate change and how food's driving that. And so I think there's been whispers of how to address this. And so this program looks at plant-based food and barriers to uptake from a consumer perspective. Um, and my research is part of that, but it's taking less of a consumer perspective and more of a um, further up the value chain look at what's going on in this space. And I think part of that research, you talk about um, the alignment with tikanga Māori, which is uh, bringing in line the, the whole Māori protocols and telling, uh, telling stories. Um, as a means of uh, increasing, I guess, the appeal um, and the connection. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So the initially the PhD topic was um, what is the unique value proposition of Māori plant-based foods? And I eventually realised that that word value was really important. Um, so within that, it's kind of exploring what the social, cultural, environmental and economic outcomes could be for making healthy and sustainable food. But in order to address all of those outcomes at once, um, Māori businesses are using their like cultural blueprint, tikanga Māori, um, to inform the way that they do business. And so that's a little bit about what I'm exploring. So I spent the last year-ish interviewing the businesses who are partnered with our research and um, just asking, you know, what's difficult, what's easy and what motivates you to make these foods. Um, and, you know, obviously part of that is understanding um, their tikanga or how they um, just be Māori and apply that to the way that they do business. Yeah. And I mean, one of the potential barriers that you've also identified um, in regards to Maori-led plant-based food initiatives is is land ownership. And I read your blog on this and it really surprised me the small percentage of Maori-owned land that's actually suitable for growing crops. So how does this all kind of play into the, the big picture? Yeah, so it, it is a pretty big picture. I guess there's challenge already for any Maori business working in this country is that they're inheriting a colonized society and so navigating the challenges of um, things that have happened across history including alienation from land um, that does make it difficult to then self-determine your business um, and make healthy sustainable food if you don't have um, the land to grow the food that being said many Māori still are finding success and self-determination despite these challenges. So it's not to say that it's, you know, um, yeah. But um, so back to your point about crops. So I think 
Maori now uh, officially own, I think it's like five, five-ish percent of all land. It used to be a hundred percent, but obviously um, land alienation and things happened such that, that that's now not the case. And a lot of that land, um, yeah, can't support crops. It might be I think nine or 10 percent can support crops. So that's a barrier. Um, it's not the be all end all. Um, but obviously, if only 10% of your land can support these high, high value plant crops, that that is a bit of a challenge. Yeah. And then looking at some other figures, do you feel that perhaps there's a disconnect with, okay, so it's that uh, the, the figures I've got here. So going back, it's 1.2 million hectares, which is about 5.5% of the land, and only 9% is supposedly suitable for growing plant crops. But when you look at now Maori assets and you look at how much a bigger percentage is, is going towards sheep and beef, dairy, um, we'll leave out fishing and aquaculture because that's in the water, but um, forestry and, and so on. Do you not think that perhaps there could be more? You know, where, where is the focus? Oh, how do we approach this? You know, there's obviously a big dollar value attached to all this. So I get that. But when we're talking about real on the ground, excuse the pun, you know, wanting to have more land that's that could be more beneficial for more communities, is there not perhaps a disconnect in terms of where the focus is, income or having land that can actually generate more uh, well-being for communities? Mm-hmm. Or is that not the case? I think I've only got, you know, a certain degree of understanding, most of that from talking with these Māori um, partner organisations, but... I think some of that issue is that it's inherited. Um, I can't recall the specific piece of legislation, but when, you know, at the peak of uh, land alienating policy, they would say, you know, look, you got to use your land um, or we'll take it. And so one really easy thing to do was put um, sheep and beef on it. And so I think, yes, there, there is some reliance in Māori economy on these primary industries like sheep and beef, also understanding it's not entirely like a choice. Some of it's inherited, some of it's just um, maybe people haven't realized uh, that, you know, that there's other, there's other industries out there that can be grown, like the plant-based sector. And there's also that additional challenge for Māori where a lot of that land can't support crops anyway, like a lot of it's hilly. Um, and so sometimes it might feel like for some of these people growing sheep and beef is their only option. Um, But that's not to say that there's opportunities for diversification for trying new industries uh, like growing plant-based food. But I think there's in general some challenges to that that I've heard is that, you know, like what plant crop do you grow? Do people want it? and then once you grow it, who's going to buy it? Who's going to turn it into food? Um, maybe they don't have the infrastructure to process it into a sausage. Um, and all of that costs a lot of money as well. So I think there's some perception of risk. And it's perhaps perceived as easy to keep doing what has been done in the past and continue with it. But obviously with challenges like climate change and a changing agriculture and political landscape, you know, like with the emissions trading scheme, things could change. Um, And 
that might incentivize people to move into different industries. But it's a really complex picture and, you know, I've yet to understand it fully, but there's so many moving parts. And then if we look at the actual consumers, so putting aside the perception about like the the associated financial risk for the actual producers and um, manufacturers, I'd really love to get your opinion on what you think some of the main issues are in New Zealand, especially within the Maori population, um, about like consumer choice around plant-based proteins. Um, and maybe even if you have any words of advice for health professionals or plant-based food companies about how to more effectively engage people and promote these products so they are seen as a, a valuable choice. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think one of the key issues that's been highlighted in other work is the price. Um, people see beef sausage and a vegetarian sausage and think they're getting lower um, nutritional and taste value for what they pay for. But I think the price is expected to come down just over time as the market matures. Um, another issue is, you know, just New, Ze New Zealand diet culture. Um, I think people are used to eating meat at every meal and they expect it. And so to give that up can be a big sacrifice. That being said, flexitarianism is growing. People are, you know, opting for plant-based meals more often. Um, and what's another? Yeah, I think those are the key things is the price and then the perceived sacrifice and taste and nutrition. And I, I guess there is one thing working in the plant-based favor is that people perceive it as more healthy. Um, even though that's not necessarily true, sometimes a plant-based sausage has a lot more salt in it than a beef one or something, but yeah. And I guess for Māori in particular, I don't know that there's any unique issues there. I think, um, patterns, you know, consumer perceptions are similar across you know, different demographics. Um, as far as advice for health professionals go, if I think from a dietitian standpoint, um, well, actually, that's a whole nother talking point. But advice, I think people should be more aware as health practitioners that plant based diets are a lever for people's health. And so even getting them to recommend it in the first place can be a really big one. But whether or not they're doing that, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, so Sam, I'd really love your opinion on this because I know in Australia, um, dietitians, you know, we're really equipped with knowing, uh, the ins and outs of medical nutrition and how to deal with patient health. Um, but something we're very passionate about here is the sustainability side of things. How do you see dietitians, um, being educated in this space in New Zealand or if at all at the moment? Oh, it's really cool to hear that Australian dietitians are passionate and interested about sustainability. I did see the Australian Dietitians Association, I'm not sure of the official name, sorry, released a position statement on healthy and sustainable diets. I was like, wow, that's amazing. Um, but I think in Aotearoa, it's not included in our training curriculum to learn and understand food systems and how they operate at like a higher level and how that contributes to environmental planetary health and then how that affects people's health. 
Um, we didn't have one lecture about, you know, the environmental impact of food. We had one lecture on um, like the politics of food industry, but then that was wedged between an industry presentation from beef and lamb. <laughs> so I don't know. Um, oh. Yeah, Ben's laughing. So yeah, I, I saw the irony at the time, but I don't know if anyone else did. Um, but I think if here we were to include more of these systems level understandings of food and planetary health, dietitians would be much better equipped um, to understand then, you know, um, the value of a plant-based diet or the value of a sustainable diet. Because right now we get really good understandings of patient-centered care, like you say, of medical nutrition therapy, uh, like nothing on um, the food system beyond, you know, the, the individual. And so I think that's a really another huge opportunity for change because um, dietitians are really important and can be really good advocates for healthy food, um, both at the patient level, but also at the systems level. So I'd really like to see that. So maybe Dietitians New Zealand could copy Dietitians Australia in releasing a uh, healthy, sustainable food system statement. Can we take a step back, back to some of the, the things you've just mentioned? From a cultural point of view, and let's say pre-European time, the food that, that you know, our early settlers or, you know, our first settlers ate off the land or from the land of Aotearoa and the whole concept, I mean, there were no sausages then anyway, right? Either the meat came straight off the carcass or you ate off the land, so trees or out of the ground. So the cost thing is always... <laughs> It's such a, a, a funny debate because people say eating plant-based, eating vegan is more expensive. Yes, if you're replacing like for like, right, your, your, your plant-based patties and your sausages. But really, as a dietitian, are you actually advising to eat those sausages or are you advising to eat more legumes and, and, and fruits and vegetables and so on? And then comparatively, the cost, well, now it's, it's a different ballgame. Secondly, going back to that cultural uh, concept and this is the, the the interesting thing when you look at it globally is well what foods would they have normally eaten pre-european arrivals in terms of the concept of having pork beef lamb you know for breakfast and for lunch and for dinner where, where does that all sit well i really like the phrase eat like your ancestors um and for maori um envisioning you know traditional kai maori is really exciting. Um, that would be a bit harder to eat a kiwi or a kakapo or some kind of meaty bird. Um, but I think the ability of people to lead those um, traditional pre-colonial diets is obviously significantly impacted. You know, like 90% of wetlands are gone. So how do you get your tuna or your eels? Um, most waterways, I think upwards of 95% of our rivers are deemed polluted. So how can you fish and gather traditional food in that way? Oceans overfished, it's a bit harder to fish. If you go diving, it's kind of hard to find power. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's there's barriers to leading a traditional diet. But if you also envision that Māori ate quite a lot of plant matter, that can be a really good way to think, well, maybe our diets don't need to include a lot of beef. Um, and even if legumes aren't traditional for us, that's probably more in line um, with you know, a healthier diet anyway, even if it's not strictly traditional. 
So I can't remember what your question was, but I've weaved around. No, no, you've you've certainly you've certainly touched on that, and that's important because again, I'm coming from with blinkers on. I'm coming from my perspective, and this is why this conversation is so important because we need to look at it more holistically and from a different perspective from the outside, but we don't know how to. Um, and actually, just one other thing, and please rein me in if I'm going too far down a side path, but you spoke earlier and, and you touched on it again now, but you touched earlier on about, um, you know, primary industry, the investment in primary industry here in, in New Zealand. And, you know, perhaps it's just easier to carry on with what we're doing and you're getting some income and that can be reused for other components. Is there a enough of an understanding of a lot of the harm that primary industry could be causing to the health of our land? So we're talking about having good land to plant crops, yet you've just mentioned a significant portion of our rivers, our waterways, over 80% for sure, polluted. A big reason as a result of that primary industry they're vested into. Um, you know, when we're talking about other components, but especially our primary industry for one, is there a disconnect? Is there enough of an understanding? Is it easier to turn a blind eye? Because like you said earlier, it's just easier to go with what you know. Or if there's a true will to bring a lot more of the of the of the real holistic um, sort of approach to solutions, shouldn't they be addressing some of those other things they're invested in? Yeah, absolutely. And I, what I'm about to say here, it's not Maori and specific Maori specifically, but more just New Zealand industry in general. It seems very short sighted um, the way that things have occurred, um, the intensification of dairy in particular like it's the amount of damage that's been done the degradation to rivers and soils like it's not worth it even even if you think about the economic value which is already such a narrow way to think about food and health and economies um you're actually not even getting that much value out of it if you're destroying a river um if you really really want to put a dollar sign on it which i don't think we should but you could but rivers rivers worth I don't know, billions and billions of dollars, then it's actually not economically efficient. It's not economically worthwhile to get these short-sighted gains for a few when when the all the costs are externalized onto um, everyone else. And uh, yeah, no, it's not right. But I think from what I heard talking to our Maori partners is that, you know, this short-sighted short strategy isn't worthwhile. That's why you have an intergenerational one. Um, one company I spoke to, Wakatu, they have a 500 year plan rather than operating quarter to quarter. And I think that's definitely the way we should be thinking about food systems, the way we do business, not extracting so much, not prioritizing profit, but making sure we meet all of these different outcomes, not damaging groundwater for generations and generations just to you know, make a buck. It doesn't make sense. And, it, you know, like the way that these industries operate, it's like serving the needs of this global food system. Because um, I think 95% of our dairy gets exported. Um, a lot of that dried as milk powder using coal. And so should we really be sacrificing ourselves for this global food system? Or should we try and reorient our efforts towards taking care of, you know, our lands and waters um, for the future.
because if we keep doing what we're doing, we're probably not even going to be able to do any of it in the future if all the soils sloughed off and there's no fresh water. Yeah, so I'm getting excited. <laughs> and this is all fantastic stuff. Thank you. And I mean, you've already basically addressed this with what you've spoken about, but kind of um, threading the pieces together here. How do you actually see um, plant-based nutrition being able to address social justice issues and, um, you know, moving towards a more fair and equitable food system within Aotearoa? Hmm. So I think plant-based capitalism isn't going to save anyone, but if you take, if you, so we've got like a fairly new plant-based sector here and if we grow it based on better values um, and don't grow it at the expense of land and water for profit then i think it definitely can contribute to social economic and environmental justice so if these maori businesses want to um, make plant-based foods in a way that doesn't exploit people's labor in a way that provides um, you know empl employment and education opportunities in a way that doesn't degrade the land, but maybe even enriches it. And then the food ends up being really healthy, not only in a nutritious sense, but also having not destroyed anything along the way. Then I think that's definitely an awesome way to contribute to social justice because food's so fundamental, right? And it, um, people really take it for granted, but there's a lot that goes into it. Um, you know, the food value chain is kind of like the, <laughs> Sorry, let me let me rephrase here. Where am I going? Um, yeah, I think food's a massive opportunity for social, environmental, and economic justice. Not only for Maori, but for um, everyone. To continue drawing this out a little bit more, because it's so important as outsiders, and it doesn't matter an outsider to an issue, an outsider to a problem. So whether you're in a different country or outside of a community, doesn't matter. As outsiders we're very good at throwing money at something. You know, we donate money to an organization, donate money to a cause. We think that we just need to buy. We just need to buy something to give it to that community, that group, and it'll fix the problem. You know, there's starving kids here. Okay, here's some money, buy some food, ship it over. You know, we just think throwing money is the, is, is the easy way out. What should we be doing to better understand what these issues are, what the challenges are. So exactly what you've just we've just spoken about now in terms of addressing social justice and so on. But what should we be doing better to understand this better so that we can come up with better collective solutions? I think it's a really hard one. I guess when my research is done, you can read it. Hopefully that's a good insight. Um, I guess one thing that I think is important is that it's Yes, we as individuals play a role in this, but I think these issues are so systemic that without that action at the top, um, us buying certain products won't really lead to meaningful change. However, if those products are produced in a values-based way, then that will make some impact. And how can people understand these issues? I don't really know. It's taken me a really long time to even arrive at beginning to understand them. Um, and they're so complex. You can listen to the lentil intervention <laughs> and that will help. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, 
Yeah, well, that's a fair point. I think it's it's. Um, I mean, for us, it's bringing on guests that can help us, you know, uh, understand better in terms of certain themes, certain topics, and and so on. But I think just generally, it's 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 opening ourselves out to listening to other communities, listening to leaders from other areas to to understand what their firsthand experiences are, because it's very easy and it's easy to say, oh, look, this is the idea I have. I'm a complete outsider, but I think I know the solution. So this is what the solution is going to be. And I'm going to come and deliver it to you and tell you what to do. And I think the lesson in that is that it's about the collaborative approach. It's about engaging but allowing those from within to also come come forward with the, the the solutions and actually to listen because that's probably more chance of working. So mm. I think there's an important lesson in that. Yeah, definitely. I guess to some extent I'm also an outsider. You know, I don't own any land. I don't have a farming background, um, but I'm just beginning to try to understand it from a research perspective. And I hope that will give me a bit of a springboard to then work in a more direct way but no idea what where i'll go after this but it is exciting and i suppose it's also an important role for various organizations to play here and helping educate the masses and do some really important work on the ground which kind of brings us to your involvement in a couple of different organizations so maybe let's start off by talking about the maori agency um toy Tangada, I hope I pronounced that correctly, um, first. So you've been involved with them for quite a while now um, and you actually started off with your um, internship there. So tell us a little bit about that agency and the work that, that um, occurs and also how you found your internship and what was involved. Hmm. Yeah, so Toi Tangata, they're a Māori nutrition and physical activity organisation. I actually only had a really brief, brief time with them um, in a three-month internship. So that's the extent of my involvement there. But my time with them was really valuable. They really um, nurtured my understanding of how a, like a Māori public health agency works. So that was really cool. Um, that was in my third year of university. Um, and yeah, so they're still continuing some really awesome work. If you're into sport and exercise, I know they've got some really interesting resources and um, learnings on doing physical activity in a traditional way. So that's pretty cool. Um, but the organization that I'm more involved with, with now is Audita, which is the New Zealand Climate and Health Council. Um, been involved with them for about three years and I became um, one of the co-conveners at the end of last year. Um, which I was a bit afraid of, but it's been okay so far. Um, and it's a really exciting space to be in. So while Toi Tangata is like a public health agency, Auditao has like a kind of interface with government more as like a independent organization representing health professionals who want climate justice to achieve health justice. So yeah, it's really cool. And can you just comment on the name of that organization? Because it's actually got a really beautiful meaning behind it. Yeah. So uh, order means, I guess, like health or vitality. Taiao means um, like environment or, or uh, also like nature. So it's like vitality of nature 
New Zealand Climate and Health Council. So it's like um, healthy environments and nature is <laughs> preceding uh, climate and health. Yeah. And they've been around for, I think this is the 11th year, started by quite a few people, but I do know Dr. Alex McMillan and Dr. Reese Jones, who are pretty big in the climate and health space. They're both doctors. Amazing. Um, such an important conversation and, and um, you know, we need to have more of these. And, and you're certainly not the first PhD student we've had on the show. And we certainly know it's not going to be the last because you are cliched. Yes, I know, but it's true. Our future leaders, the way you see the world is, is important compared to us growing older generation. It's important to stay connected and you certainly shared some some valuable insight into things we're not as aware of, and a lot of our listeners won't, and and that's why we want to do this. But we so let's talk a little bit about you going forward now. So you've got your you you know busy with your PhD, and this is going to take you a little while as PhDs do. But where do you see yourself going forward from there? What's your five hundred year plan? <laughs> oh, I wish I was going to be around for that long. Um, even a five year plan's a bit hard to imagine. Um, so five years ago, I couldn't have imagined that I would, you know, end up in this space researching this topic. I didn't know that was even a thing. Um, so I feel really lucky and really grateful to be doing this. So in saying that, it's really hard to know what I'll be doing after. Um, I'm quite interested in, you know, working at the policy level and government. Um, I could see it would get frustrating at the same time though. And I'd you know, I'd like to continue building my research skills. Um, and I'd love to be able to practice as a dietitian, even if for a little bit. Um, so yeah, I think there's a bunch of things that could do. I remember saying to someone maybe uh, eight years ago, I'd love to start a mushroom farm. <laughs> so maybe if I can somehow uh, acquire some capital, I'll start some kind of plant-based food thing, but don't know what yet. Could be mushrooms. Could be something else. Could be seaweed. Seaweed's exciting at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Well, I do know of a of a uh, well established mushroom farm just outside of Fungarei up north. So why not? <laughs> um, and to our listeners, we're talking about the edible yummy mushrooms, um, of course. <laughs> so just in case anyone's getting any ideas there, another semi serious question from your perspective: Are you hopeful? Are you hopeful about our future? with New Zealand, the planet? Um, I can give two answers. I can give the official answer. Um, is that I guess if we think about food systems and climate change being such massive problems, then there are also really huge opportunities to address, um, you know, multiple different issues at once. And it's really easy to be, um, you know, gloomy about it, but I think there is still huge opportunity and it's not too late. And I think the future will be determined partly by how hard we fight for it. So that's my official diplomatic answer. But also it feels like the world's on a path and it has so much momentum that, you know, me as one person, I will have, I have no, no hope in stopping, stopping it. Um, and it just feels like history's happened and it's going to keep happening. Um, and 
climate change is already happening, so we can't really stop it completely. Um, demand for meat is rising. Um, and yeah, so I think on one hand, the future is possibly bright, but on the other hand, there is definitely some doom on the horizon. We have to work really hard to uh, avoid that as much as possible. Yeah, the, the cracks in our food system are definitely widening at this point in time, aren't they? So it's really important, as, as Ben said, um, as you've said, Summer, to keep having these conversations and keep them in the front of mind of everyone because we've all got to shift the dial somehow um, and it's going to take action at all levels, I suppose, to achieve that. So, yeah, thank you for sharing your wisdom with us on that. So on that bright and cheerful note... Um, <laughs> oh, we can't end it this way. <laughs> no. So, uh, no, look, on a very, very positive note, or some of you will know, listening to some of our podcasts, is that on your own, yeah, it's it's difficult and it's difficult to see a light at the end of the tunnel. But the, the collective approach is where we have that hope. I always mention the concept of grounded hope, working with food, working with your nutrition, grounded has a double meaning there as well. So there are opportunities. We can influence change and for me personally you know if I can always influence one person that's a job good well done you know and I'm sure we're all doing that already if not tenfold hundredfold etc etc so and we always say this as well and it's not just scientists but academics researchers and so on the the, the importance and the power of communication is so, is so much more important now than ever has been so people like yourself you know, you dedicate your life to researching, to understanding, to coming up with solutions. Communicating that to the rest of us is is even more important. Otherwise, why are you doing the job? So we're only grateful to have people like yourselves on the show to share your wisdom and your experience and your knowledge and your piece of hope. Um, so thank you, Summer. We really, really appreciate your time. And yes, we'll hold you to it. Publish the research will bring you back on. We'll discuss it in more detail. Thank you so much for your time, Summer. We really appreciate it. Cool. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. Thank you for listening to the Lentil Intervention Podcast. If you found this interesting, make sure you subscribe and share it with your friends. 